yeah, I, I don't nest at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and like all of my furniture is pretty much that table, mm-hmm. those two chairs that I stole free from the lobby. Those are nice chairs. Um, my bed, my bookshelves, mm-hmm. and a bunch of instruments. Yeah, and she's like the little things around here. All the things knacky hanging things. Up yeah. Yeah. That's cool though. That's really cool. Hello friends and welcome to episode 8 of So Poetry. Um, this is the first episode of the new year. Sorry for only posting one um, for December of 2015. I was trying to do one in like the, the middle of the month and one at the end of the month and end of the month stuff is crazy. Um, I had kind of a minor depressive episode and then got pretty nastily sick. Um, so I will do what I can to make up for it. But um, one of those things being <laughs> the first, first um, guest of 2016 is the Ooh. indomitable Dre Harris. <laughs> Um, I really, I have to say, um, you were probably, um, my favorite poetry performer that I've seen. <laughs> and I'm thinking specifically of the, um, seltzer and words. Yeah. Wasn't that fun? God, that was fantastic. It, I had so much fun. <sighs> it, was, it was so fun. <laughs> like, I, I have never, I've never seen anybody knock a poetry reading out of the park, but you were like, you were the first person to do that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. It's been a long time since I'd been able to come to the stage in that way. And it was fun. It always it always works out really well when you have an audience that is really ready to participate. And that's yeah. exactly what that audience was. Yeah. And so many great writers in the room, too. So everyone just was ready to be a part of the work. Yeah, it's like... I. I feel like with with writers, it's always kind of dicey to get them to like do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I think enough of the people that were there, like you said, were in that space of just like, yeah, fuck, let's go for it. Exactly. Because you know? <laughs> um, like, well, so what we're referencing is that um, writers and words, which I'm, I think I've mentioned a couple times on the um, on the podcast. Great series. Um, it's a everybody's in, if there's anybody in Baltimore who listens to this. Um, I think it's usually every second Tuesday of the month um, at mm-hmm. Charmington's, which is up on Howard, right across the street from the Auto Bar, mm-hmm. um, from like seven until I don't know, like nine ish or so. Mm-hmm. Um, they get uh, it's Mike Tager, Michelle Juno, Ian Anderson, Amanda Ponder. Ah, her last yes. name is actually pronounceable yes. now. Um, <laughs> host a like a um, reading series, which is just it's great and then oh, yeah. um mike Shattery? what's his last name oh i'm gonna like mess Shattuck? this up yes okay yes okay him and somebody else or a couple other people that i don't i feel bad for not knowing what their names are host um seltzer which is an open mic series which is also at charmington's and i think is like the it's some some other tuesday or thursday at charmington's like a couple like a week or two after um, 
writers of words. Anyway, yeah. they teamed up one night or one time uh, back in 2015 um, mm-hmm. and did like an open mic beforehand and then a featured reader. Um, which sure like a was, showcase. Yeah. yeah, it was a great showcase. And so what I loved is um, Seltzer always has great open mics, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they really blended the best of both worlds because Writers in Words brings you so many great uh, writers in the Baltimore area. You get a nonfiction, mm-hmm. a fiction, a poetry, and a wild card, mm-hmm. right? And so um, they blended it together for that show and approached me to be the poet, and I was just so excited. Um, so honored to be a part of that. And um the open mic was phenomenal, first of all. I've never been to an open mic. You know, sometimes with open mics, you get people who are nervous or presenting their work for the first time and um, mm-hmm. are trying new pieces out. And the open mic at this event was just stellar. It was just everyone got up and did their thing. So yeah, Anthony read really, really Anthony well read really well. Anthony Mall, who was my first guest. Yeah, um, Justin Sanders, Jessica oh, Welch. Yeah. Um, oh, God, Jessica's and, piece. You, wasn't it phenomenal? Jeez, yeah. God, wasn't totally it great? I forgot about that. Yeah. I actually, like, I was se- like severely, severely tempted to sign up for the open mic, and I, I very rarely... <laughs> you would have been like, a great addition. Like, oh, you would have been a perfect oh, addition. Andrew Klein got up as oh, well, yeah. Mandy May. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot of people um, who are just excellent writers in the community. People you will hopefully eventually hear on yeah. the podcast yeah. coming up in 2016. Yeah. So um, I was, I was, you know, gifted with the opportunity to be the poetry feature, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. The other features were really great too. Really phenomenal lineup. Um, so yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> that happened. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> since we've talked a little bit about you uh, just like beginning to scratch the surface of you as a poet um is there any anything about yourself you wanted to say um any like introductions you wanted to do about yourself okay well i am um a southern poet i come from um if you're speaking in a kind of a spoken word performance background and you're thinking about like i don't know what you call them maybe slam territories i'm from the south so um uh, southern fried territory um, if you're looking at uh, poetry uh, poetry slam uh, locations if you're breaking up the, uh, the country that way um, yeah I'm a poet um, I have a spoken word background I spent about three years of undergrad actually putting together a open mic showcase oh. similar to what Seltzer and Words um, was it's called Rhyme Spot we did that for about three years and where we booked um spoken word artists and poets who were regionally and nationally recognized on the slam team to come to little old Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> and we, it was a really wonderful part of the um, uh, poetry community. We built a circuit within the state and had some community organization um, efforts where we'd get school supplies for kids, um, oh, wow. do workshops in elementary schools um, and after school care programs. And, um, yeah, so that kind of work. Um, enjoy working with a lot of Southern um, producers and poets and artists that way. And then when I moved up here to Baltimore, which to me is still Northern because I'm so like deep down South. Oh, yes. Um, but any place that gets snow regularly. That's how I feel. That's right. You're from the South too, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So um, I moved up to uh, to Baltimore to pursue my MFA in creative writing and publication arts. 
um, which I'm in the last semester of, which is nice. I'm in thesis territory. Um, Next so, semester is going to go by so quick. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. I moved up here and kind of put a lot of my performance time away. I wanted to really focus on uh, page dynamics of poetry. Um, and I've gotten into teaching some, and that's a lot of fun. Um, I'm doing some playwriting, which is exciting. Uh, screenwriting is fun. Oh. So I'm really exploring different venues. Um, really cool. Yeah, on the page. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. My background is in IT and business. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh, right? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's always amazing to me when, because um, there are a lot of people in the program that have like entered the MFA through um, like other avenues. Like Anthony yeah. was like a communications yeah. guy. Ian was like a uh, like a graphic designer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's always I feel like so like I um, I started out undergrad as a music major and then mm -hmm. switched very after my first year to an English major and then ran through so like I. Um, English, English was my um, major, concentrated in creative writing, got a minor in film studies, wow. and then went directly into the MFA. Wow. Um, so I feel like there's, like that, having that kind of like condensed trajectory, mm -hmm. I think, it was, it allowed me to keep a lot of things in perspective and kind of carry with some like critical analysis stuff that I was mm -hmm. like, I was just fresh on all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like I, um, I don't know, that there's some like, a some strengths coming into the program from like another point of view or like having some experiences yeah. or some like, um, I don't know if like general life experience or just like experience of things outside of English Yeah. that, you know, you can draw from or that you have access to that. Um, I feel like English majors, you know, <laughs> like you get kind of dug down into that cave. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I can understand that. I can understand that on the, on the flip side though, Sometimes I do battle these moments of insecurity oh. because, you know, there are certain fundamentals and foundational elements that I have to become a quick study on. Yeah. Um, and this assuredness, I think, that comes with um, having already been down that English path, right, mm -hmm. dug deep in that cave that those those individuals have that I've got to like, all right, well, I guess I got to go read these four books this week, yeah. you know? Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, the, like the whole question of canon is always so dicey because you have yeah. like, um, oh, I was thinking, was I, I was thinking something similar about like canon, although I don't, mm -hmm. I think I, I got to it from some other thought, but I remember, I, never mind, this tangent's not going anywhere. <laughs> anyway, um, but you have all these like, um, Oh, no, I was talking about um, haiku with Danielle. Because yeah. um, I read an article that some woman, um, I don't want it to sound like some woman. It's just, I don't I remember her name. Yeah. She, she's, a, um, I think, a journalist and a writer for, um, for like, Vice or Verge or something like mm -hmm. that. And um, she wanted to do a, or she wanted to get, like, she, her big question was, like, why don't, men write women poetry anymore mm. so she did a she set up a tinder profile and was like only oh, respond yeah. to me or only contact me if you're going to write me a haiku uh. um and like i'm i'm real salty when it comes to like mainstream <laughs> and stereotypical <laughs> views of haiku because how it's That's your thing. yeah how it's <laughs> how it's taught is not really um 
It's like it's not what it's like. It's so much deeper than that. And I was I've it's always a westernized view of it as yeah. we tend to do. Right. Yeah. And, it, and that got me thinking about the whole like canon that you have all these like, um, you have all these traditional forms, all these traditional writers mm-hmm. that everyone is supposed to know. Yeah. But there's so much. It's like you have um, like even with forms, you have like the haiku, you have the sigil, you have the yeah. gazal, you have yep. all these other like very strict forms of writing that don't really get any sort any of love. like yeah, yeah or even really any, any understanding or mm-hmm. the, when you get into them they're like real real shallow sort mm-hmm. of like yeah it's like for haiku it's like yeah it's three lines five five seven five mm-hmm. like um syllable count yeah and it's like no actually there's no. a lot more to this yeah that you're ignoring you've mcdonaldized this yeah and yes that's, yeah that's not okay <laughs> um so but with like the whole sort of like well i have to go read these books now it's yeah. like that's sort of yeah. like well like who's like why do I have to know the, yeah right okay so <laughs> we're getting into some interesting territory in this balancing act that comes you know so the benefit I think for me um, having a background that stands outside of English is that I've had to build my own canon right and yeah. it helps me build a level of authenticity mm-hmm. that is unique to my message my identity my experiences yeah. um, and so being a grad school challenges that right because it's taking this personal canon that you may have developed but also balancing that with um this more popular canon that you're given right, right? and there are definitely things that exist in that um popular canon um that are important um and that are necessary uh for whatever reasons and for yeah. all the reasons yeah. um i think that for me, it's looking at this popular canon and saying, what can I learn without being observed, absorbed into this kind mm. of singularity that happens right. when you, all you study is the popular canon, right? right? Yeah. Because, of course, you can take levels of influence um, from it, but I think that the danger in everybody holding one canon really high is that then we take everything that that canon represents and we say this is what we believe and we want this to imprint on who we are and it shows up in your work. Well, some of the popular canon, to be perfectly honest and think think about identity, some writers in the popular canon didn't really like black people. And that's a real thing that exists in our culture. Yeah. It's a real thing that exists in our history. And so it's a necessity to be careful for right. me with that, yeah. right? I can respect Wallace Stevens and what he brought to it, um, but then I have an understanding about um, the identity of men in that time period in that era and what that means to um, their existence and yeah. how they may view the people around them. Yeah. I can still respect his work, but that doesn't mean I really want to put him in my personal canon. Right, yeah. And then, you know? <laughs> yeah, and like the whole, like even your personal canons, it's, it can be um, difficult to balance that with, because yeah. like, you, you, I mean, a lot of the poets that I'm reading, like if you look at the middle shelf over mm-hmm. there or the second from the top, those mm-hmm. are, that's like my pantheon of, of writers. I and see, Kenyon is, Kenyon. Mm-hmm. Nice. So there's yeah. like, Oh, uh, Anne Carson. Yeah, there's a lot of Mary Oliver. Um, mm-hmm. There's Jane Cooper, yeah. uh, Charles Wright. So a lot of like, kind of plain spoken, direct, like autobiographical, but nature centered poets. That's like that's what I gravitate towards, and that's what my voice is. But yeah. it's like there is that um, that danger of just surrounding yourself with, you it's know, true. like the same sort of stuff, and, it's true. and not being. But I agree that like. Um, 
it is important to like keep all that stuff in pers- in perspective mm-hmm. and the whole sort of like um, like a being appreciative of um, the artwork and what the art itself has done or can't like um, yes. Camus' Stranger. It's like that's mm-hmm. a really seminal piece if you're trying to understand kind of like the mindset of modernism, and mm-hmm. at least in like in the West mm-hmm. after World War One and like what happened to Western writers and Western mm-hmm. figures of mm-hmm. just like this great hope was suddenly just like that bubble was popped and like yeah. oh shit this is terrible yeah um, <laughs> like all the guys yeah. who came back from World War One were like this is you know all these um, yeah. like there's a one of Anthony's favorite poems is. Um, Dulce et decorum est, or something mm-hmm. like that, by Wilfred Ohm, which is um, ends with the line of you know like something along the lines of like you like it's it, you can't say this old lie with a straight face to the new that it's like it's yeah. it's good and right or good and just to die for one's country because like he yeah. he was in the trenches like especially yeah. World War One was like just terrible yeah um, yeah but I mean aside it's like you might not necessarily like Camus as a person or yeah. agree with the things that he said but it, you know it's like it is it's a lot, some of those pieces are important to put into like the historical context and yeah, totally. get the, the kind of like overarching humanities view of it's true and you know I was thinking about when I saw Kenyon um, I was introduced to Jane Kenyon through um, the program actually mm-hmm. Betsy Boy's yep. um, seminar same, literature same here. which I <laughs> I affectionately call Sinlit. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, Jane Kenyon is um, a poet who our identities couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. However, I really respected the emotional depth yeah. that she unabashedly brought to the page, right? She was going to get into it. And some of my favorite poems are where she has that plain language, but she is so visceral oh, and yeah. the emotional depth that she presents. Um, and there are certain things technically and mechanically that annoy me with Kenyon. <laughs> like for real, how lazy is it to take the first or last line and make it the title? Yeah. Try harder, yeah. you know, um, to a point where, and you know, looking at her um, work um, in class, you could see things sort of develop formulaically. Um, Jessica Welch and I were kind of looking at that and seeing like, huh, this is really interesting how she, you know, puts her poems together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some things technically I'm not a fan of, but I respect. Um, and I think that she is someone that I can't say she sits in the personal mm-hmm. um, canon. That's a lie. I like the way she, <laughs> I like the way she digs deep and she brings yeah. that out raw and um, that raw nature. So I think, yeah, I think she actually would be on my shelf too. I she, yeah, and I have I have a couple of books by Bukowski, and he's like he's one of like the diciest guys that I yeah. have up there because yeah, I um, saw that. I, like I, I I may have said this before on the on the podcast, but I I read Bukowski like other people take shots of whiskey for courage. <laughs> um, I feel it because <laughs> there's certain there's certain times that I'm like so in my own head or like yeah. the inner critic and the inner editor yes. is just it's like it's yes. harping. I'm just like I I can't I don't. It's like I I. Whatever I'm writing, I'm imagining it has to be this thing. And mm-hmm. then I read a Bukowski poem. I'm like, I can fucking do whatever the fuck <laughs> do I want. Do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And it's like, it's, this. it's nice to be kind of reminded of that. That Like, I, I picked up another one of his books um, about a month ago. And I've been kind of thumbing through it. And there are certain, some of the poems are just like, it's just like he's talking about his day. Or like going <laughs> to the racetrack. And it's like, there's not, mm-hmm. there's really not here. But then usually at the end and this is this is one of the other reasons why he's up on my shelf is the ability for him to take a really mundane 
like monotonous quotidian poem and at the very end throw in this like just like heart-wrenching emotional or like poetic moment which mm. you just arrive somewhere and you're like you yeah how did you even pull this yeah. off there's so a genius and <laughs> so i'm i counter him a lot with mary oliver because she mm. does that a lot and i'm mm-hmm. i'm much more um aligned with like her general outlook and yeah. you know like existence in the world rather yeah. Than yeah. Than yeah, yeah. yeah 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 i feel um, it i totally feel it that's cool yeah <laughs> Very cool. Poet cells. Poet shells. I have my, the little, the little guy over here is all my Asian stuff. Nice. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so anyway. But you've got that strong influence because you, sp- oh. You're, no, oh. no, you go, go for it. <laughs> like you've got, you study um, haiku in a way that I, I can really appreciate. Shelf, yeah. The shelf is, that's all English language haiku. Yeah. Stuff. Oh no. Yeah. Um, is it? I don't know. I have to go check that. Dude, have you read um, any of Richard Wright haiku, Wright's haikus? I have the book somewhere. Where is the yo? Um, ah, uh. he's. Hold on, I'm gonna. I will be. I have to disconnect my. That's okay. My ear, <laughs> earbud. Um. Look at that. Look at that. I have not that. really dug into them all that much, but it's, not, it's like it's lurking on my shelf. He wrote these as he was about to die. Really? Yes. I have that a, is a story I read. I have a collection of Japanese death poems, um, which is a really, really interesting, mm. and like, oddly enough, a very serene read. Because mm. um, a, a lot of the, um, back in, I don't know when this tradition started and when it ended, but it was like a tradition among like, especially like the monks or like the Buddhist priests and mm. I think. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong on this, somebody fact check me and let me know. <laughs> um, so it was, I think, a, like a popular tradition among like the monks and the priests and members of the like the higher, like the samurai class right. and the higher ups that um, either right before you, like if if you're on your way out, you write mm-hmm. a poem and it's like that's kind of your last mm. your last thing that you do in the world. Right. Um, so a lot of them are, you know, like Buddhist monks. Or, you know, like, teachers that are, mm-hmm. you know, like, on their deathbed and they write something and then, you know, they die. Or um, samurai that will write a poem, um, like, before they go into battle and mm-hmm. keep it on them. So in the event that they die and people are, like, going through bodies, they can find this find thing. It. Um, or people who are about to commit, um, like, seppuku or anything mm-hmm. like that will sit down, write the poem, and then, like, commit kill themselves. That. Yeah. Um, and it's like the, the, like so many of the poems aren't actually about death. Like some of them are the, the kind of like the nostalgic or like, you know, I, I will never do this again. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, you know, I, I wish I could have seen this person smile one more time or something. But a yeah. lot of them are, it's like, it's a lot of them are haiku and it's about sort of just like, you know, like, uh, you know, like it's a cloudy day and they hear like a piercing bird cry and that's, mm-hmm. that's it. That's the poem. And it's just like super disconnect between the fact yeah. that it's like, this is the last thing that they did yeah. before they like knowingly killed, you know, like, sh- sh- like evis- yeah. eviscerating themselves yeah. essentially. It's like, yeah. Like, but I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. You, you know, never, like I've never encountered that in like the overall Western culture. You know, I think that, and, uh, okay, so let me, 
I'm going to orient myself to this, right? So um, when I talked about doing um, kind of the uh, community and workshops and mm-hmm. schools and with kids or whatever, so I spent a lot of time in and out of classrooms from basically, you know, kindergarten to high school. Mm-hmm. And I loved bringing the haiku. Um, and <laughs> I felt like I was doing this um, service to haiku and kind of saying, hey, guys, what you know about haiku isn't all there is. And I don't profess to know all of it, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to how it exists culturally for, you know, the people who, who own this as a part of kind of like their artistic identity, right? Mm-hmm. But I can say I've read a few articles yeah. and this is what I know about yeah. this form. And so it was so great to bring it um, in, in at least the level of purity I know it in, mm-hmm. right? Um, to people and see how they loved this form of haiku as opposed to, you know, kind of this popularized McDonald version of haiku. Mm-hmm. So in that, I've really learned to love this form and Sinryu's as well, Ooh, um, yeah. which are kind of like the big brother to haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think the Sinryu actually was first. And then eventually they started distilling down to the haiku. Um, and please fact check, of course. Well, they're... they're... Different. So it, originally, I'll see if I can do a super, super abridged history of this. Um, they were originally, like, haiku was developed out of a, um, a linked verse, which is essentially like a party mm-hmm. game, mm-hmm. Um, which would be set up so you'd have, like, a like a three line as the opener, like a or, like, the what we come to know as a haiku is essentially yeah. the opener that sets the mood, sets the tone, and kind of yeah. cues up everybody else for what they're going to do, and then it's followed by like essentially a two-line thing and then another three-line thing and a two-line thing so it's a kind of like a, a mix between haiku and tanka yes um, that just keeps, yes it just keeps going back and forth yes that's um, what i'm sorry yes <laughs> um, so then um like basho was a renowned um i think it's a ring ringe yeah. yeah or ringi or something something along those lines it's like he would be invited um you know, like on his travels, would be invited by people to to host these parties, and everybody wanted him to po- to host. So on his travels, he would write, he would keep a, like a compile a list of just starters that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, How cool is Basho though? Yeah, and then he was like, well, actually, these things have kind of merit in and of themselves. Yeah. So he was the first guy to, to like separate yeah. the little introduction thing from the rest of the linked verse, and that's you get kind of like proto haiku and then it was yeah. developed further by like Busan and Isa or the two of the big names yeah. and Shiki massively revitalized it in the early 1900s but the Sinryu kind of was brought along with the haiku and they're more um, so like haiku are nature based and very um, absent of the poet writing them usually yeah. Sinryu are more um, focused on like human stuff and human foibles and mm-hmm. use like interactions between people and um you know like they're they're usually a little more humorous too that's like they're mm-hmm. um but yeah so and the tonka as well those are the three yeah. that i that i have, some, I I have a, a couple of like tonka oh um journals that listen in... thank you so much for that <laughs> like like thank you so much for that i appreciate the knowledge that yeah. you have and you bring to this yeah so it's wonderful. Richard Wright. He's exciting. Yeah, so he wrote those while he was dying. That's how that's how I remember that wow. story. Um, and especially like bringing like Richard Wright as a haiku poet into Come on. Um, yeah. So 
so okay this is a story that this is i read this a while ago and this is how i remember the story going so he gotten sick um and i want to say he was bedridden or that's he, a very cheeky move he was like, <laughs> the last couple of years of his life couldn't like he was just in bed mm-hmm. like dying essentially from mm-hmm. nothing tuberculosis i think it's a similar situ- situation with richard wright and he found out about I guess the hockey says in the form. Book, it's like the last poems of the American. Yeah, haiku. yeah, and he got on the uh, got on the haiku form and wrote it out. It's funny. So, um, so I'm I'm a creative writer, or whatever. And my family, um, my mom and dad both had a, like a little history writing, right? And my oh. dad has been all kind of creative things, um, and. Um, a writer as well so a writer is one of the things that he did um but i never really saw it as a part of his identity because that was pretty much wrapped up by the time i was born mm-hmm. so anyway um fast forward to now and um my dad starts writing haiku he's texting what? them to me it's That's crazy fantastic. isn't it awesome it is awesome so it's weird though because i'm in the middle of workshop so he's sending me haiku, and he's like, oh, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, I love it, but do you really want me to workshop this? Because I am in the middle of, like, visceral, not, and I'm not a visceral, like, uh, heartless feedback person, right. right? But I think we've been in workshop. We were in poetry, too, together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I like to, we too. were in turtles class. Yeah. yeah. So it's a situation of, um, you know, I'm about that life. <laughs> so... Um, That's awesome. It's awesome, and it's great. And he would send me like haiku, and I, I am horrible at like people. People are like, hey, how do you feel about this poem? Let me send you three. Oh, I'm so bad at that. I'm so bad at returning them in a timely fashion, and that was one that happened. I know that struggle. <laughs> so I did not actually return feedback to my father in an appropriate time, and that was the end of. The- <laughs> the haiku text messages but we've since talked about it i think we'll be okay good um but it was so great and so i sent him information about richard wright i was like dad Uh, check out richard wright's um haiku i think you would really like it so i'm not i haven't checked back with him on how he has liked it but yeah haiku bringing families together (laughs) it was fun it's a fun thing that happened it's a random circumstance it's so random but i love it yeah so that's cool very cool. <laughs> okay. Um, let's actually get to some of these questions. Though. All right, um, let's do it. Uh, so the question that I ask everybody okay. who writes poetry, um, like all of my guests who write poetry, why poetry? Why poetry? Okay. Okay, well, I'm a huge communication person. Mm-hmm. I love to communicate with people. Um, and I like poetry because of the tools that it gives, um, for communication. Um, I'm, I'm a really visual person. Um, there are things that I love about sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that they're really important to communication and poetry allows me to communicate in a way that is aesthetically pleasing. Um, and it allows me to take what I want to communicate and do so in a way where I attempt some level of beauty. <laughs> um, but I can use tools like imagery, 
which brings in this visual person that I am and I can bring in alliteration and assonance and now I love poetry on the page because I can really get into the design mm -hmm. of, um, of, of language when it comes to line breaks and white space and how is this look on the page going to translate to someone um, experiencing this by themselves and you know spoken word was wonderful because you have the opportunity to use poetry but also engage um, energetically and emotionally with people in the room mm -hmm. and have poetry as something that just lives between the two of you you know it is the artifact is the performance and the experience of it uh -huh. whereas on the page you have so like the page is the artifact right yeah so if you the difference between maybe like a pressed LP versus mm. going to see the band in a, a concert. Perfect, yes, exactly, exactly. Because you have the artifact, you have all the extra, like, the artwork mm -hmm. and the layout and, you know, I mean, pr I, probably to a lesser degree than a poetry book, but it's still, you know, it's like there's the visuals and all these extra things that are um, supposed to, I think, like, open up the experience of, mu or at least, mm -hmm. like, that, that version of the music or that, ex like, that interaction with it whereas yeah. with the live show it's a totally other unique yeah like beast yeah it's true it's true and so poetry allows me to exist in those ways and in those worlds um i and as i start dealing more with like screenwriting and playwriting um it's a different type of communication that you're able to do mm -hmm. but it's not the same yeah and so um elements of poetry rest well in it but you know it's I love poetry, so that's why poetry, because I like I like the tools I can use. Okay, when you write, and mm -hmm. I imagine this is might be shifting a little bit for you, but when you yeah. write, do you write to be read or to be heard? Ooh, you know what? Um, right now, you're right. It is shifting for me. Because I imagine that, and like. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong on this, but I imagine that when you're doing um, a lot of the performance-based and like spoken word stuff, there uh -huh. was like your writing was was probably more catered towards being heard because that mm -hmm. was like the um, the avenue in the um, like the context in which it would be in which other people would be um, interacting with it. Whereas mm -hmm. now, since you're getting to stuff on the page, it you it feels like you're tending towards like maybe a mixture of both like not yeah. so much because i'm i'm totally on the side of writing to be read yeah um uh, okay so my first experience with poetry actually was on the page mm. um my mom bought me this book um it actually just showed up in my library you know how you're like a kid and all of a sudden you're like look at all these books i have the hell did this come from yeah um it's this book called honey honey i love and it's a book of, I should have brought it. I found a copy here randomly in Baltimore. Um, however, it's called Honey I Love, and it's um, a poem, a poetry book um, with images of little black girls and their love poems to oh, self or just wow. about being a little black girl. Perfect, right? It's just beautiful, beautiful illustrations. And that was my first book of poetry. The wow. next book I That's had a really affirming, like, was it, first encounter with poetry. I had the benefit of having people around me that valued literacy and representation in your in your literature, mm -hmm. and in having art around me. And so the next book I had, unbeknownst to me or anyone else, the significance of this book was called "The Lucky Stone" by Lucille Clifton. Mm. It's a children's book. Um, 
and it's it's nested stories but it's so clifton-esque in a way that clifton shaped my aesthetic before i knew who clifton was as a poet wow fantastic phenomenal and crazy right just wild so that being the case i um didn't find spoken word until undergrad i um, was known for kind of writing poems a little bit some people um that i was about to go into an undergrad program and i heard they had a poetry you know club and i was welcomed by some of those members and they were like you should try performing and got into performance. So all this is a roundabout way to say, I started really loving page poetry. Shel Silverstein um, and um, uh, Dr. Seuss, who doesn't love him, right? But with Shel Silverstein, I, as a kid, because I went to a performing arts elementary school, would stand up and perform the poems. Uh, And so I've always had this kind of back and forth between the two where I love the page and I love language, but I, I have this desire to kind of like express myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, they've kind of, now looking back, kind of grown together, but sometimes one blossoms more than the other. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to focus more on page poetry because I had um, some time with spoken word. I wasn't a person Uh, that was going to, you know, do slams and tour all over the place, but I did have a love of it. I did, you know, volunteer with Southern Fried a little bit, which is our regional competition, um, slam competition. Um, I have a lot of wonderful, great friends and mentors from that area, Sean Judah in Birmingham, Shantika Latrice, who's in Birmingham, um, Queen Sheba, um, who's a phenomenal poet. She's just, she's, she's amazing. And I'm so lucky that, you know, She's my friend and mentor, um, uh, Judah One, David Oliver out in California, and Machine Pomona and his initiatives are good friends of mine, Liz Strait. Um, beautiful, wonderful people who have, um, you know, come to Rhyme Spot and been a part of that, but also been a part of my growth as a performance uh, poet. Mm-hmm. And um, I had all this, spent a lot of energy and time with that aspect and realized, you know, I want to move into page because I know this is something I love to balance the energies out, you know? And so then I started applying to programs, but I pretty much knew this was the program. University of Baltimore's MFA program was pretty much what I wanted. Book art stuff. Oh my God. The publication art is what really nabbed me in the, our, the, um, our mock project residency. Oh yeah. And Kendra is fantastic. Oh, I was going (laughs) to say the fact that you are branching into like screenwriting and, um, like playwriting definitely mm-hmm. feels like it's the kind of melding of like the word on the page but also the yeah. word to be like the words to be heard because I mean, yeah. it's like um like how plays look on a page is a really Ooh. really unique and you can do a yeah. lot of like yeah um a lot of really neat things with the, like the thing on the page which can then translate out to oh my gosh Oh my gosh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So to answer, to come back around and answer this question, right? Yeah. So, yeah, this is the way that um, these things are melding together for me right now. Mm-hmm. Where um, I knew I was always interested in playwriting because I have so many friends who were actors. Um, and I wanted to write something for them. And I love web series. So I'm going to write screenplays. <laughs> um, and, you know, that impact on, you know, navigating and manipulating the visual aspect mm-hmm. of, of time and space and people into a narrative which has been written. Um, and so in that way, my work, you're right, is completely shifting. And I'm thinking about um, images in a different way. I'm thinking about movement in a different way. 
Um, so right now, I think, actually, to bring it full circle, I think that my work is coming to a place that I am existing in both places comfortably right now. Um, so and you, it, you're the center of the Venn diagram. Yeah, of the... <laughs> it's true. I feel like I'm navigating a space in the center of that Venn diagram between page and stage. I'll tell you why. Because I wrote, remember at the Writers and Words, um, the Writers and Words performance, mm-hmm. I have a poem called The Writing Session. Yes. That poem is on the page broken into, um, I think in its current iteration, two parts. The first part is a situation kind of setting a stage of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part is a list. It's a list poem in which um, there is a number and then a reason. Oh, um, yeah, that's the one that you got everybody to stand up for. Perfect, yeah. exactly. So beforehand, that on the page, it has a unique um, look because the first part of this poem is kind of a dialogue, mm-hmm. and the second part of this poem is a list poem, yeah. right? And it speaks to one of my jobs as a writing consultant or a writing tutor, and it speaks to the nature of this session. Mm-hmm. However, the actual emotional work it's doing is taking the client who is a young person, in my mind it's a girl, but it may not read that way, mm-hmm. who is from Baltimore, and they've been told to write a poem, a paper about what are the issues in Baltimore. So the second part of the poem is me listing these issues so that in this writing session, we can create the actual right. steps to get to the, the paper. Yeah. So what I did at the performance of this poem is rip up the second part and pass the pieces out to people in the audience so that when I say the number on stage, another person who is from Baltimore stands up and takes on the identity of this frustrated young Baltimore Baltimore girl, yeah. right? And I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but it was beautiful. Yeah. I and I I could see it from the stage happening and unraveling. And so for me that was a moment where on page this works and in performance works too. this works. Yeah. And so it was such a great Cause it, marriage for me. And I think that um like I, I have my own, and I'm I'm sure that I've mentioned them many times in the podcast before. I have my own issues with like readings and mm-hmm. how I want like kind of attending readings now that they're developing of like I, I don't know I'll, I'll get into that yeah. later, um, not on podcast later like <laughs> hanging out with Trey one on one later. Um, but like one of the things that I, I appreciate when um, like when you have a book of like a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, or like if you're reading a poem by yourself, if it's a persona poem, you become like in the reading of the eye, it's like yeah. you're, you're reading it, mm-hmm. like you become that person. Exactly. So with like the list poem or like the second half of that, when you are trying to do the work to get the reader to identify or to like, yeah. be, you know, to step into the role of this, um, this frustrated, um, Baltimore girl, you can do that on like a one-on-one mm-hmm. basis because like every individual person reading that will have that experience mm-hmm. and um, translating it's like the the fact that having like tearing up the the sections and handing them to people does that work mm-hmm. like on the like as a performance aspect of it yeah. which was a, like a master stroke that like each one of those persons um, like the, the ones who, who agreed to participate in it become yeah. like they do the work yeah. and then like kind of 
like nab and drag the the rest of the audience into, into that space it. too yeah. because they're like I don't, like I don't know it's like that weird sort of the audience participation when it opens up the performance to mm-hmm. be this like really really inclusive thing instead of yeah. it being like the audience that and the dis- performer. oh I can't stand that <laughs> oh I hate that oh don't put a wall there I'll stand in the middle of you don't don't do that yeah so no I agree and it, I love it because it becomes a situation of everyone is engaged because you know the person next to you may not know you have a strip of paper until you stand up and you're talking about the bus system like what the hell is happening around yeah. me right you know yeah. and um it's fun it's fun in a way um but i think yeah it's it is powerful in that way and that's what i was hoping for i so the performance side of it worked and then um the avenue actually picked that up for publication and their oh, latest wow. issue nice. so that felt really good because it's working on the page as well mm-hmm. um and so yeah my so to answer the big question <laughs> sharia um, so yeah i think my work is in that place there are a few uh pieces going into my manuscript now um that i can definitely perform um and that i'm excited to but then there are some definite pieces that just i think the be... page is best huh, and because the design of it, um, the design of it, uh, I'm really getting into the economics of language, especially when the emotional content is so big and vast. Um, I think that it's, it's okay to let the emotion show up and fill the space on the page and the language just just be the avenue and doorway for that. Yeah, and that's you know, it. You know what's great for economy of language with big emotions? Haiku. I know. <laughs> I know, though. I'm aware. Um, I am aware. You know, and it's funny. Um, actually, I have some poems um, from a really tough place in my life. And actually, I didn't feel comfortable even writing or ex- really digging into that mm-hmm. um, part of my life. Um until I got in program. And these poems have to deal with um, a really touchy political situation. Um, A lot of times that women don't even want to make a part of their own identity, right? And that is the right to choose. Um, Mm. And so I have um, what I kind of term as my abortion quote unquote poems, right? And I actually started it started as just a, an outpouring one morning. Mm-hmm. I was there emotionally. I'm just I I'm a big wall writer, so um, it started when I was a little kid with like butcher block paper. Well, actually, it started on the carpet and walls. And my mom, being the genius she is, put butcher block paper mm-hmm. and computer paper all over the walls. So now it's something that I do on windows or yeah. whiteboards or whatever. So it started so one cool. morning as that release. Uh-huh. Um, and when I went back, I took it all the way to an, a, an event that I went to with friends, not recognizing and realizing at that moment that I was pregnant. And then basically the lyrical narrative, um, as it came out that morning, went all the way to after the procedure. Oh, wow. Um, and kind of the last poem is me kind of, the last poem at that point was me kind of coming out of my body and... Actually, I won't say coming out of my body, but personifying tears. 
that. So I really go really deep into uh, myself. Yeah. Anyway, um, part of that, one of the most difficult parts of that to relate to other people is the actual moments in procedure. And um, because it's wild, yeah. right? Like the whole process of um, the decision is wild, but then to sit in that room mm-hmm. and to go through this, it's wild. It's a crazy experience um, and not in a way of like trivializing or dismissing, but it's something that I think is different for everyone. Um, for me though, haiku was a wonderful way to approach wow. that yeah. to where um, I, the poem in its current iteration is segmented uh-huh. and this, but it, it follows chronologically mm-hmm. the, the events, right? And the experiences, but each segment is a haiku. And so that was, it's the, the challenge there, which actually I think was really great for my healing process um, and kind of working through that was distilling down to the most powerful moment mm-hmm. um, and using haiku to do that. Yeah. And in that way, it's kind of a McDonald's version of haiku because while it, you can reach and say, yes, this is about nature and the process, right, yeah. um, I don't know if I'm comfortable making that reach. You know, yeah. like well, justifying I mean, it in that way. But You're, you're within, um, when Shiki won like the last like of the like the four masters, the last mm-hmm. one who did a lot to like revitalize and kind of rebrand haiku in the early nineteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, he really championed a view of haiku that you write. There's a term for this, and it's in one of my books, but I don't remember offhand what it is. That um, you write from your own experience, mm-hmm. um, in that like reducing the amount of like the nature mm-hmm. words because like most people living in cities didn't deal with that. So it's like yeah. it's drawing essentially just kind of from like the everyday mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so you're you're in like you are within the tradition if you, wanna, if yeah. you want well, to yeah well i'll take it yeah. i mean if you'll put me in there i'll gladly take it um but yeah so haiku was so helpful during that time period because um when it's something that is externally um living in relation like me to it when it's external i can really um, observe and be an observer mm-hmm. and really really tease this thing out and represent it in a way that's comfortable and I feel I have a level of success with when it's internal I'm realizing and when I'm t- trying to navigate this vast eternal lands- um, ex- internal landscape emotional mm-hmm. landscape um, I think that it is comfortable for me to use language economically yeah right because well, um, it does and in a structured way almost yeah and that's that's something that i've i've kind of come to realize with a lot of um and actually i read i was listening to oh, just like a preview of, or like the very end of a, of a ted talk last mm-hmm. weekend um where the the ted talk was on I don't know what it was on, like the, the most of it was on, but the final kind of bit of it was that in um, cultures that have religions that are not recursive, so like mm-hmm. like Christianity or any of like mm-hmm. the Abrahamic uh, mm-hmm. religions, um, people are much more concerned with kind of like black and white and like, yes. of the, uh, like a duality or like a polar yes. spreads in mm-hmm. cultures that have like their, most of their religious beliefs or their like 
philosophical beliefs um, deal with a world that is recursive. It's like yeah. the things, it's a... It's, a cycle and pattern. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. They are much um, more comfortable with things being kind of like fuzzy. And he was yeah. he was talking about um, like Indian, like the, like Hindu beliefs and people. Okay, Eastern, yeah. Um, okay. And like I've encountered that a lot with um, a lot of like the Japanese... Um, like philosophy and kind of the stuff that I've read that it's mm-hmm. that they people in in the east or eastern cultures that have um, you know that have grown that dealt with like Taoism or Confucianism mm-hmm. or you know like um, like Buddhism is a is a big force mm-hmm. um, deal with a world that is like recursive it's it's yeah. cyclical um, yeah. and like all the things that happen in life including death are just part of the cycle and. <clears throat> So, like, to be a part of life and to be in that cycle is to experience all of it. Yeah. Um, so it's been it's been my experience that most of the philosophical philosophical stuff or like the um, like higher thought, like deeper thought teaching that comes um, from those areas of the world are much more comfortable with stating something and just letting it exist, like yeah. the like the Zen koans and stuff. It's like you just yeah. you kind of just say it. You just let it be and here that it is. instead of in the West where it seems that most of the philosophers, like if they, they will keep writing and they'll keep trying to say stuff and they'll keep going yeah. and keep going. Really and digging and yeah. honing in on it and clarifying, clarifying, yeah. and clarifying. Which yeah. makes things much more muddled and much more, you know, just like hazy and fuzzy anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I think that that's, especially with Haiku, there's something to be said about um, like taking this this big emotional or this big whatever experience um or even like the small experience and being like i cannot there's no way that i can accurately transfer the enormity and like the emotional truth of this or like Mm -hmm. what i actually experience or Mm -hmm. like what it it, what it made me feel Mm -hmm. so instead i'm going to try to get it down to like its core essential substance or like Mm -hmm. provide you with the the circumstance that i experience this in the hopes that it will engender giving you like enough of the detail or enough of like the kind of kickoff points yeah in hopes that it will engender a similar type of thing in you well you know and i think that's a really interesting point and speaks to um number one kind of my ability to speak on something that is so personal and also political Mm -hmm. is that um it's something that needs to be talked about, I believe, and yeah. it's something that a lot of women experience. Um, but there is a public shaming that goes into that. Um, yeah, that comes from a, a lot of public shaming that comes from a lot of places, um, you know, political places, uh, religious places. Um, but I think it's important that we recognize that even in all those places that it exists, it also exists in a woman's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a very delicate place for anything to exist. Um, it exists in the lives of a lot of people and it's something that we should talk about. Um, but because I'm not the only person, right? Um, yeah. I think that I like haiku and that it allows me to say, these are the things that happened to me. Yeah. These may be like what happened to you. And in mm-hmm. that, that is unifying, yeah. right? But in haiku, it doesn't give you so much that now this experience becomes the authority on the experience. Right. Yeah. It keeps it keeps things as, and I, I think that that's. I mean, any any 
solid form of art, I think, does this. But it, it keeps... It allows the personal truths to, like, intermingle with the universal truths yeah. through kind of a poetic truth. Exactly, exactly. I, I Yeah, I think I would agree with you. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, where these three things exist in a way... Um, there's like an intercessor between mm-hmm. the, the personal and the universal and that's the poetic truth mm-hmm. that it might not be mm-hmm. and this is this is something that I've um, I don't know why I'm gesturing towards the microphone okay. as if the audience can see it <laughs> they're here um, yeah um, I've actually been struggling with with some of my pieces it's like I try to keep things as like true to my autobiography or like true to what is actually happening like what like if I'm writing about an experience or writing about um, like something that's happened to me, trying mm-hmm. to keep as true to that experience as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's like you don't need to, as long as the yeah. like the emotional or the poetic truth is in it. Oh my it's God. like you can kind of. Yeah. It's like even like I think memoir kind of really or like nonfiction <laughs> stuff really yeah. gets into that space too. That it's like because memory as a like a source is dodgy at best. Yeah. Um, like the kind of like the hard facts around this thing can be hazy, but it can still be a like even if you even if you don't get all the facts right in relaying the story, it can still yeah. be a true story. Okay, so I you, I was laughing because you are totally in my life right now. So <laughs> um, I was just having this conversation with another friend, a good poet of mine, uh, Maya Green. Um, she and I were talking about um, kind of that same thing where. We're both Southern poets, Southern black women poets, and in that, um, there's a culture of of um, the South, and I think also um, in black families where, you know, what stays in the house, what happens in the house stays in the house, right? Mm. And um, especially in the South, you know, this, we're not quite as bad as Minnesota, mm-hmm. but we, you know, there is a certain level of presentation that exists yeah. and respectability that exists. Yeah. Um, and so writing about yeah, the South is all about oh like, my presentation God. and respectability. Yeah, so writing about my own things, like when it comes to abortion and things about myself that a lot of people may not know, it's one thing because it's me, right? Right. And solely me. However, when you start wanna, wanting to write about the experiences that you've had in relationships, familial or wherever, yeah. um, there is that tug of like, do I do I stay true to what exactly happened? Um, what is the benefit of that? What are these pros and cons of that? You know, mm-hmm. um, and in the end, for me, it's authenticity. But then also, there is this reality of emotional time and emotional truth. Um, and I have a poem where um, I didn't even realize this happened or that this could be a problem until like a month ago. Yeah. Um, but I wrote this poem. I, my great uncle passed and my grandfather actually died when I was young. We have um, these really beautiful tender uh, moments we've had together, my grandfather and I, my paternal grandfather and I, and, um, but he died. And so my great, my grandmother's brother stepped in and really had a huge role in my life. And so my uncle Chico died while I was here at UB. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the first time I was away from my family and um, experienced a death. Yeah. And it was such a significant death. For me, time moved like molasses in the winter. It was so fucking long. Everything was this huge emotional load. And it's weird because the things happened sequentially, I feel like probably very quickly. But my emotional timeline was shot. There are actually, like, I can only mark 
the beginning of this emotional train ride yeah. or roller coaster around Valentine's Day and my last day working retail at Apple because as part of the care my then boyfriend gave me, we had this cute little wine and cheese thing and it was Valentine's Day themed because Valentine's Day was close. After that, I have no concept of time at all. Yeah. I have no fucking idea how I made it through any of that. Yeah. Um, I couldn't give you dates or anything. So in the poem, one of the poems I wrote, and I wrote like five of these in Turtles class. We're in Turtles class. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote like five of these poems, and I sent them all in for, pub, you know, for submission to be published. Well, one that was published is one in which I am, as a writer, um kind of exploring the fact that I have gone into this mode of kind of survival mm -hmm. and I'm not emotionally in touch. Yeah. And can I write these poems? Oh, from that place? Yeah. And so, Ooh. and it's a, sh now it's a short two stanza, maybe in its current iteration, it may be like four lines in each stanza. I, I'm really getting on my Clifton right now. <laughs> um, but in any case, um, so the last, in the last stanza, it says, uh, after two weeks, we will put your body in a grave. Now, I don't know if it was two weeks. Mm -hmm. It probably was not two weeks. Right, yeah. Right? Um, it probably was more like four days. Who knows? For me, it was an emotional two weeks. This was long. And that's, that's true. That's in the, and it's true to me, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Recently, I realized, looking back at this poem, I'm about to put it in manuscript, I was like, I don't think that was two weeks. Yeah. And I also then thought about how did this, like, how did this come across to people? Now, on the flip side, my family bought a ton of them. <laughs> when they found out, oh, it's been published, it's about Uncle Chico, people were excited. Um, they my family bought a lot of those. I have no idea yeah. how that line went over. And I'm at a point now where I can't I can't access it. You know, yeah. I can't think about that because I'm in the moments of the manuscript coming. That would be a really detrimental, kind of like a sand trap for me to start really worrying about how every little line has to exist factually in the yeah. world when this is an emotional art form and you know kind of an emotional science happening here in a way that i just have to let it exist as it exists and hope that my family and everybody else will understand yeah and I, <laughs> I mean i've i don't know other people's other poets experience a relation with this and i you can i guess you can be my my guinea pig of, <laughs> or my litmus test of other people deal with this in the same way but i feel like um like so much of my interaction with art is intuitive, especially yeah. like my, I mean, uh -huh. my, my main modes are poetry and music. And mm -hmm. most it's like, it, I write, I essentially write poetry. Like I play by ear. It's mm -hmm. like, it's just, I kind of just things. There's this little like catch in me. That's like, if things, if it works, it hits that catch. I'm like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are like something like that, like that line is something that I think it's like you just trust your gut. It's like if it if it's if yeah. it reading it again, it's like this feels true, yeah. like regardless if it's factually true or not. Yeah. Um, like I I was um, I don't know if you knew this. I was on at residency at a, pro, at a thing that. in in Nebraska for two weeks in October, yeah. last October, um, and um, 
one night, uh, some of the other residents and I went out to karaoke at our like the only like the only local bar. <laughs> um, and there is this guy who actually ended up owning. He owns the farm that was across the street from the farm that I stayed on, mm-hmm. um, and he's a beekeeper. So oh. he was like, he cornered me and another one of the other writers and was talking to us about bees for like forty-five so minutes, wonderful. which was like awesome for me because I learned a shit ton about bees that Love I never bees. knew. And Love I wrote bees. like I wrote a poem out of it, yes. and like I I wanted to to keep. I tried as best as I could to keep factually to what, he, or like keep true to my memory of what he told me. Yeah. Um, but like how how the conversation in the poem went, like chronologically, was not how the conversation yeah. went in real life. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> it, like on the one hand, it kind of matters, mm-hmm. like if this was a phys- if this was supposed to be like a factual thing. But on the other hand, it's like this is this was my um, this is how it imprinted on me emotionally yeah and this was my experience of it emotionally after the fact it's like this is my interpretation of it yeah um you know i will say um i actually became more courageous in kind of the subject we're talking about when it comes to presenting emotional um time and truth um when i was in residency actually in um Armand, Northern Ireland, I was, I took, that was my first memoir workshop. And, um, I was sitting in front of, uh, Maureen, oh, I'm going to butcher her last name, but Kimberly Lynn was actually in that workshop with me. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this very thing, which is, um, emotional truth, Mm -hmm. dealing with memory Mm -hmm. as a, you know, like you said, kind of fuzzy at best tool that we have. Right. Um, and then how that is creatively represented in your writing and one of the things that they actually of course I'm in a room full of memoirs um, but one of the the things that they actually shared was that creatively um, it may be a benefit to not start the story in the beginning oh yeah you know just play with time um, and play with um, the different elements that exist in that narrative Mm -hmm. in a way that um, the message is what comes through right, yeah. and the emotional truth is what stands true so I don't know did that answer that question I feel like I was on my way there and got sidetracked I feel like that might be answered what do you think is that answered yeah okay all right we'll take it yeah um yeah that's like there are different rules that come into play because like if, if you're writing a journalistic piece True. Like that, you have to be. It's all based on the genre. Yeah, it's and like what the audience. Expects. Yeah, it's like if you're if you're writing a journalistic piece, unless you're doing some like weird gonzo journalism stuff. It's like yeah. You, you would expect that this thing is going to be like <laughs> as factually true as you can mm-hmm. make it. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you're writing up like an interview, like I did a um inter- interview piece when I worked at UMBC, mm-hmm. two of them actually. Um, and you know, like I was telling a story about these people, but I kept it as factually true as I could. Yeah. You know, like I, I took notes during my interview with them so I could actually quote them. Yeah. Um, although I think on one of them the quotes were edited a bit, and I'm like. But you uh, did your work. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you did your part. <laughs> uh, I don't know how like how how I should feel about this, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's weird having like other editors other than you. Like, I have heard about that. Like, yeah, yeah. Stuff. Anyway. Yeah, I've had um, that experience too. It's weird. But with like memoir, it's not like the point of it is not to tell a factual. It's, you're not writing like a biography of a president. True. True. Um, or like a Wikipedia page. True. It's. Like the goal of this thing is to tell an emotional story, or to tell something that has some sort of emotional impact. So the emotional impact of it is the most important thing, 
And the trick is not not having um, ornamentation, or yes. what is the phrase that turtles used when we were in class? Emotion, not emotion for the sake of emotion, but ha- really... Yeah, like not, not sentimentality. Sentimentality, yeah. yeah. Like, don't get sentimental. Make, you know, there's a reason why this is here. I, and I think you're right, though. I, I Yeah, I say that to say I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that as poets, we have that same ability. Um, with us, we're actually, I feel like we're a little bit freer because we, yeah. like, we can deal with, which I think emotional truth is within a poetic truth but poetic truth is its own unique sort of like because you can like i'm um waiting for you to to get over here i I took out uh jane hirschfield's the beauty which is her newest collection Mm. which is like thumbing through it Hmm. and there's some poems that like are like fabrication i I know that's like Mm -hmm. they're they're true because she thought of these things Mm -hmm. i have no doubt of you know like on a day or whatever Mm -hmm. um but actually there's one I'm so happy this is happening. Um, He's opening the book. You can hear the pages. It's wonderful. While while I'm finding it, when you read poetry collections, do you start from the beginning and work all the way through? (laughs) Or do you, like your first time through, do you hint Uh, heck or do you go all the way through? Oh, I think it depends on who it is. So with Clifton, because um, I'm used to her work, um, when I pick up like a collection I have not had before, sometimes I treat it kind of like an oracle. Like I'll wake up in the morning flip open a page, and just read. And then just read a little bit through. I did that with um, Alice Walker, Poems for Earthlings. I for, That's the subtitle. I can't remember the main oh, title. Oh, yeah. Um, something about her blue body, I think is it. But anyway, with that, I would just wake up one morning, open it up, and just read five or six pages, put it back down. And that's how I got through that book. Um, keep reading until it's like, oh, I've read this one like three times. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's how that works best um, for me. Actually, um, Eurissa Daily Ward has a book called Bone, and that book is wonderful. I actually went through that one straight through, um, and I did that because I read that with the intention of really going through the work as a writer and as um, uh. a peer. She's a, I want to say she's South African. Um, no, that's not right. She's a diasporic poet, um, and she's spent time living between the UK and I don't remember exactly the African country. I believe it's South Africa. I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong. But in any case, um, I read that through because I'm I was interested in taking that work in. It's how these poems exist mm-hmm. together, creating a narrative, right? I went that with more. I went at that with more work. So I guess the answer is, if I'm looking at it as something that okay. I'm approaching as an artist, then I want to see how this works as a as a um, experience. Right. Yeah. But if it's something that I am just approaching for, um, like your own enjoyment or your own mm-hmm, satiation mm-hmm, or, or enrichment, yeah. then it's a situation of just kind of letting it open and read. Okay. That just depends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, since since we were talking about haiku. Um, the first, so, um, this is Jane Hirschfield's The Be- the Beauty, which I think was published, like, last year, two years ago, 2015, oh, yep, nice. um, so it just came out, this was kind of paired with an, another book that she, I think it was Tin Windows, which is, a mm. like, just essays that she wrote about stuff, which are, <laughs> which are, which are, are awesome, <laughs> um, 
so she has a segmented poem called Works and Loves. Um, and the first one of these is about as tremendous as a, as a like modern haiku oh you can get. Oh, my God, I'm ready. Um, so this is section one. I'm not going to read the entire thing because there's another poem that I want to read. But um, it's one. Rain fell like a glass breaks. Something suddenly everywhere at the same time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can I read that? Yeah. Do you mind? Rain fell as a glass breaks. Something suddenly everywhere at the same time. Look at the alliteration here. I wish you guys could see the way these lines are set up, too. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I need this. All right, let's, let's get the next Okay, one. so this is, this is what I was talking about. That like I have no doubt that this is a true poem, but it's possibly an amalgamation of a lot of different days. or mm. It's like it may not have all happened. Because like, usually when I read poems especially with Hirschfields, it's like they're moments. Mm -hmm. I interpret them as like moments that have happened throughout her day mm -hmm. um, or days or whatever. But it, like being a poet and like playing with poetic truth, it's like you can like compress or expand time or like emotion or these mm -hmm. things that are essentially true, like way deep down, like striking the cockles of your heart, true. Mm -hmm. But they may not have actually like function the way that you think that they yeah. function or that if if you were to view that as like this has happened like this is one moment of one day it that may be the case it's like she right. could have been in this room and thought of this poem and wrote it at in that moment or it could have been this like because i i don't know if this is the maybe. case for you but like a lot of my poems percolate it's like they take a they'll something will, will kick around in my unconscious for like a week or two and then mm -hmm. i write it so mm -hmm. the thing that that instigated it could have been this like thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, but the poem yeah. itself doesn't come out, you know, until, until later. right. Which in between then I've been affected Time. by all this other stuff yes. that colors and changes, you know, it's like, it's not that memory issue. Right. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. so it's not, it's not the like, cause there are sometimes like the B poem, like after like that night I went home and I was trying to do mm -hmm. a poem a day. So that was my poem for that day. It was mm -hmm. like, I, after we got back from, it was like two o'clock in the morning once we got back from the, the bar and I sat down and wrote this poem because all the stuff was fresh. Um, but, um, there were some days like at, at the residency that I missed like a day or two. So like the next day I would write a couple of poems from something that was based upon, you know, like the mm -hmm. day, the day and a half before. So I've had some experiences that, you know, like I'm not the same person that thought of this initial thing. So but you're been, trying to right, yeah. Write so it's this like idea. it's yeah, you know, like being true to that the initial impetus of whatever happened to make me want to write this poem, but to still be, to not limit it to just what that is and to allow it to kind of like go Gee. where it needs or wants to go. Right, and so this poem, you believe Hirsch has done a similar thing? Maybe. Okay. possibly it's okay. just you know it's like that's it's a possibility that it didn't happen in, in that one mm -hmm. moment but um, okay. so anyway I'm excited let's hear um, it so the title it's <laughs> um, as you're saying that Kenya might need to get a little more a little better with titling her stuff yeah there's a slight difference between the title and the first line but okay okay um, so the title <laughs> of the poem is The Beautiful Austere Room it goes like this This Beautiful Austere Room Room in which you are dying Room in which A minus A is still equal A. World minus world equals world. I bring it flowers. They hold themselves up from the water with effort. An aging, aging woman walking up 86th Street, slowly, in painful pink shoes and pink gloves. 
Because I meant, like, it, it could have all hit her in the moment of seeing, you know, being in this room and having the flowers and sitting there and thinking that, but I don't know, this this poem feels like it's something that, and Jane, if you're listening, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you can fact check <laughs> me on this. Um, well, this is the second second call out, direct call out to Jane Hirschfield in the last couple of podcast <laughs> episodes that I've done. You're gonna mess around and she's gonna hear this podcast. I, I'm hoping that she does and in. she you yeah. Keep calling her, man. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I feel like this might be one of the ones that like percolates, or it's like this is an experience that happened, and a couple of days later, just kind of like you're sitting somewhere, and then it, it like the imagery kind of just it materializes um, in your head. You're like, oh yeah, that's the poem. I will. I would take that. Yeah, I can. I can see that, especially how um, this beautiful image of the woman, yeah. right? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate this poem. What the? Fuck? I'm gonna pick this up. This the beauty. The beauty. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. All right. So I um we're getting to a little over an hour, um, Definitely. and no, well I was gonna meet um. I had a plan after this. Oh, um, no, no, it's hopefully I'll still be able to make it. Okay, um, I we had actually a lot of these questions were answered without me having to ask them, which is fantastic. That's exciting. Um, so I have two more questions for sure, you. Sure, let's do it. Um, one, not a question on the, on the thing. Dun, dun, dun. Um, how would you describe your internal emotional landscape? Ooh. You ha- is there like a like an image that you that like comes up for you when you think about it or is there like a an adjective or some sort of like all right so if we were going to create my inner emotional landscape ooh, that's pretty okay cool so i would say that there are probably um crepe myrtle trees there there are large bodies of water there's green foliage hanging um there is also kind of this desert that exists as well um probably some lagoony aspects of it um, there's got to be some high ground, though, like some mountains, I think. Um, mist, kind of that entity of, you know, like water and air. Um, you could have like an entire world. Yeah, it's a whole inside. thing. Wow. It's a whole thing. It's a, <laughs> it's a whole thing. And there's just kind of like shiny things everywhere it's Ooh. like gold and copper <laughs> just existing um so yeah i think that would probably be it caves i love caves caves are definitely a part i of i would love for you to write or i would love to see a short um no not short i would love to see a science fiction story or whatever written by you that features the My your internal landscape as a internal. world Listen, here's the funny thing. I love sci-fi. I actually have um, been very secretly writing sci-fi um, for a long time, and um, it does show up. Actually, that does exist. That is, it's, It does exist in a place. Um, however, 
the sci-fi-esque I'm kind of getting into um, doesn't feature my emotional landscape in that way, but maybe some characters from my emotional landscape. Your, your landscape is populated? Yeah, it's got... <laughs> wow. It's weird. Okay, so there's actually this play I'm working on now um, called The Black Maggies, which may... You may you may have an opportunity to really be a part of that um, I would love in to. a way that is it existing in space um, maybe in February maybe Let me so hit me up Black Maggie's um, is a play that I'm writing um, that uh, actually came some of the characters and some of the emotional uh, some of the things that they referenced actually come from. Kind of this inner emotional landscape, this kind of old desert space, and um, looking how that actually builds with like living in a city, living in Baltimore, right? So having this emotional landscape and then living in Baltimore, which is a very um, real and active um, yeah. environment. Oh, that's really so, cool. I'm excited. I'm excited. We'll see how it all goes. Um, but yeah, part of my emotional landscape and some kind of the characters or people who come from that. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm, 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 no, well, I'm adding this question <laughs> to the thing that I ask people on my podcast because it's um, like one of the reasons that I that I started this podcast was to talk like process or just talk you know, like po poetry history with people that I've never gotten the chance to like sit down and be like, why did you start writing poetry? Mm -hmm. Like how, who, who, who are the major influences mm -hmm. of your life? Mm -hmm. um, and like I've because all of like I know all of this stuff for me like all these mm -hmm. questions I get answered for you mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. probably with excruciating detail um, <laughs> and with a lot of probably repeating myself but um, like my I've spent a great great deal of time thinking about my internal landscape um, and like it's a very it's a very strong and stark and vivid place for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've never thought to ask other people until just now of like what if they can do if they not only know but can describe like yeah. what it's like for inside them on the that. inside yeah I was a big daydreamer growing up so mm. um, there are all kind of you know alternate emotional timelines and <laughs> stories upon stories and you know places that I would retreat to right yeah. um, and so yeah there are definitely people who populate these areas um, because kind of like keepers of this space yeah but also in um oh go ahead. no you go, continue There's oh just, sorry I just realized something that you you have to read if you, if you haven't already read it <laughs> i would love to okay so but also in the way of um having all these areas and like you're daydreaming and you're carrying this narrative Actually, forward and this narrative that's forward a really beautiful image for that really for like for like like the people who populate your internal landscape are like guardians or keepers it's like characters yeah these of characters these, of and, these. yeah these narratives that i visit and that i've created and that represent how i might be feeling emotionally in this way and um but then finding out who my, like who, where is my personal place? Yeah. I actually didn't think about that um, until I was in a workshop with Nikki Finney and she was talking about the tools that we needed and how the emotional landscape is always um, where you should come from and that's where the truth is. And, and I was like, okay, I have all these other places, but what is mine? Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of all those and it's a lot of fun. Cool. I like it. I like it. Sweet. They're just showing up in my writing. It's awesome. weird and cool. <laughs> um, okay, so the thing that I, I was pointing at you 
before was, have you read Neil Gaiman's Sandman? No. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, here's the deal. Have you read all of it? No. Here's oh, my issue. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love Sandman, right? I was the girl who would go to the bookstore not having the money to buy. I don't want the little trade. I want the big hardcover thing that exists. I have exists. the entire series up there if you want to borrow it. And I do. It. I do want to borrow it because I started it um, and absolutely loved it. But then the bookstore closed oh. and it wasn't one closed. So I had to like read some of it on Wikipedia. And oh, so I've, I'm a part of it in a way that I really love and enjoy and respect the story. But I haven't been able to get into the nuance like... Let me turn this page and do and take oh, the ride man. as it's as, supposed to be as taken. For like getting into, I mean, this might it might be a little overwhelming, but like yeah. after you get finished with your thesis, talk to me and I will I will lend them out to you because you need yeah. you have to finish it. And as a like a, an appreciation of the design element and stuff. Yes. And also, he just released well, like they just came out in like a the full um, volume of he did the overture, which is the story yes. of what happens before Sam yes. before Morpheus gets captured. Which, <gasps> like the visual, that book is one of the most visually stunning things I have in my in my arsenal. I'm it's, with it. It's crazy. I'm with it. Okay, well, yes, I'm about that life. Okay, yeah. So um, I, I want to I want to be a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and my last question um, is, as is customary. If you have any questions for me? Like Do anything, any anything that you want to ask me for you can be on any any subject, any topic, anything I you've am ever in wondered. Control. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. This is. Let me take a drink of water real quick. <laughs> Get myself ready. Yeah, with power. Have, yeah, I might be getting kind of a <laughs> drunk with disability. Let's see. Um. Um, let's see. I have a question about, um, I think I kind of know the answer to this anyway, but I'm going to ask it. Um, but your journey to and with haiku, mm -hmm. um, how has that molded your identity as a poet and, um, your relationship to um, the identity of haiku. Mm. Uh, let's see. Well, hmm. it has changed my relationship with poetry in that. Um, well, initially it was. Uh, I felt like I finally found the place that I belonged. Because mm -hmm. um, I was reading, um, I mean, I really, I didn't really read poetry for my own ed edification until, I don't know, sometime in undergrad. Like, all the poetry that I read was for classes and stuff, and I wasn't, right. like, I mean, I was writing poetry, but I wasn't, like, all of my major poetic in inspiration and influence were coming from, like, song lyrics and, like, lyricists and, st like, bands and stuff that I listened to. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have, like, any, any sort of connection with like po the poetry tra tradition right um or like quote-unquote poetry tradition mm -hmm. um so the first book that i picked up was mary oliver's Redbird, and it was mm. the very first thing that i read for my own sort of like um like to meet some sort of need that i had mm -hmm. um and i th well, i think one it was significant that i picked her up 
especially that book because it it her poems kind of do a lot of the stuff that haiku as an art form or as a style I feel like kind of operate similarly. Yeah. Um, but like all the things that I was reading around the time, um, or all the things that I were, yeah. Twice all yeah all the things that I was reading, um, were these like long kind of involved poems that were yeah. like super super. Um, I feel like aware that they were poems. Yes. And yes, I know them. Um, <laughs> just I don't know. They had they had like a an endurance or this like um, I don't know. Like the wasteland is a, is a good example. There's this yeah. like it's this like really grueling thing that you got to get through. It had to do a lot of work. Yeah, and like I um, are these thoughts that felt so like deep and so fully formed mm -hmm. and a lot of times like the thoughts that I get are these real sort of just like noticing they're like these real small thoughts mm -hmm. um, and I didn't like I, I dabbled a little bit with this like super long segmented thing that I, I was working on that um, like I wrote one night driving from undergrad college back to my parents place um, but when I found haiku or when I like discovered haiku personally um, I just like it was this art form or this this uh, this way of communication and of expression that like focused and um, luxuriated in the fa I mean these like really really small mm -hmm. like just really or like the small easily passed over moments like yep. not fully formed because like mm -hmm. I, that's one of the things that I love about haiku is that it gives you just enough for you to fill in the rest of everything for yourself. One thing I love about haiku is the importance and attention to the moment. And yeah. I think that and that's like that's so all of the, what it is. And you have to be like present, present. and aware mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, and also look. I think a certain level of you has to be looking and accepting that the moment that is there may not be what you expected it to right. be, but it is what exists, and that is the truth of it, yeah. right? And that's the work of it. Yeah, because there are, there are definitely times that I've. Um, I've had these experiences. So, like, um, earlier in the week I was driving to work and I saw the faintest rainbow that I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to come up with this haiku about it. I was mm -hmm. like, you know, I, there's something exists within this thing and I don't, I, had, I couldn't, I couldn't crack it, but I ended up writing two other things, that two other haiku yeah. that day. Um, that for that day, it's like, those are the things that I needed to, to get out. Yeah. Um, and it's it really is a lot of at least for me it's like um, it's like meditation it's like you have to be able to or I have to be able to put myself in this mindset or this like emotional space that I I'm access or I'm um, open and connected and aware and willing to to like see these things and be in this like the kind of quiet just like still place so it sounds like for you accessing poetry as something that has the ability to um, heal, shape, um, and kind of orient ourselves to the world. Haiku is what does that for you. You use things like meditation and other tools that help you kind of become aware and um, present in the world that we're living, um, as opposed to the alternative. Yeah. So that's how you and haiku has shaped your identity, but how have um, you related to the identity of haiku, where this comes from, um, it's history, the culture around it. Um, um, hmm. it's, how, so what's that like? Um, 
that's a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Because um, there is, like, especially, um, so I, I personally discovered haiku around the same time that I personally discovered wabi-sabi as, like, an aesthetic in an mm-hmm. art form. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe not an art form, but, like, an aesthetic of, of art. And what's that for people who don't know? Uh, wabi-sabi is a Japanese um, aesthetic form that is kind of diametrically opposed to the Western standard of beauty. So like in cool. in the West, um, like beauty is seen as this kind of separate static. You have to capture it. Yeah. Um, but in wabi-sabi, is something that everything. Yeah, everything like, has beauty. Yeah, or that like the longer so in in wabi-sabi is very heavily influenced by um, like the Buddhist belief that like the kind of the three tenets that nothing is perfect, um, nothing is finished. And nothing lasts forever. Oof. So there's this this so the the idea of like asymm- asymmetry and austerity and simpleness and mm-hmm. like natural elements and um, things that that have been acted upon by time. Because in like mm-hmm. in um, Buddhism or like in those in that belief, um, if you are static and you are separate from time, you're dead. Mm-hmm. The only way that's like if you're if you're part of the flow and part of how like the world and like the cycles you're going to be affected by time and you're going to develop and like where um so i usually will throw out like bb king's guitar or tom waits is a really good example of just like living embodiments of wabi-sabi okay so you so then you come across this concept of wabi-sabi wabi-sabi and haiku at the same time okay so yeah so um and that kind of broke open and i like a um a view of like Japanese philosophy or Japanese idea like artistic ideas is mm-hmm. kind of more where I'm internally situated than in the West because that was mm-hmm. always a tension that I felt that there was um, I, I couldn't place it at the time like in in my deve- like earlier development but there was definitely some tension that I felt with like Western standards of beauty that was yeah. just like like the symmetry and the equalness and everything mm-hmm. being like like representational and part of this other stuff and it's mm-hmm. like no sometimes it's like it doesn't exist in this way. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. like, and one of the, um, I also discovered like Inso as a like, uh, it's a, uh, Zen calligraphy mm-hmm. where you just it's a single stroke circle. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. And um, like a lot of, um, Japanese art, like the prints and the stuff that you see, they don't, they're non representation I mean, they're they're non. Um, For lack of a better term, they're not symbolic. So, like in a lot of Western paintings, if there's like a gesture or a color or a face that's used, it's 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 a stand-in for something else. And if you mm-hmm. if you know the, the totality of what that stands for, you'll have a better understanding, understanding of like of the painting. Yeah. Instead of being just you know like in a lot of Japanese art, it's like it's lilies. Everything that you need is here. Right. Yeah. Like pictures of like a um like a a print or a painting, a calligraphy painting of a crow. On like a plum blossom branch or like a maple branch is it that's it yeah there's, okay it's like there's nothing there's nothing deeper in this in this painting at least as far as like the visuals go than just the image that's there mm-hmm. um and so i've i feel much more internally like my internal worldview of stuff feels much more situated with certain elements that are that exist within like japanese philosophy and like artistic aesthetics um, and I feel like there is a, a real fine line that I, I'm trying to maintain because I don't, 
I want to approach these things as like a, a love of and appreciation of and, and a at student least, of. Yeah, yeah, like a student of and at least some sort of like understanding mm-hmm. of like as, as much as I can get from not being a part of the like the inherent culture that these yeah. things developed out of. Um in and in, and in no way for it to be an appropriation of these things. Like yeah. what like the West did when mm-hmm. Japan opened up and they took mm-hmm. you know like um which I guess for me would be more of like like I want to be influenced by and I want to be inspired by these things um yeah. like oh the way that Monet was inspired by a lot or like Van Gogh were inspired by I mean all this shit was probably janked from Japan but the fact that yeah. these like these these painters looked at this stuff and were, were influenced by like the artistic style and the, the mm. strokes and like the the way that things are being represented um, mm. visually. So I'm um, I'm trying to approach it as like a st- I'm a student of this and I'm um, yeah. trying to learn what I can, which is why I'm salty or I feel <laughs> kind of salty when <laughs> like haiku is is presented as this thing that's this real like shallow. Mm-hmm. kind of like ignorant understanding or like mm-hmm. a real whitewashed sort of mm-hmm. um yeah like interpretation of what this this form and this poetic you know like what it does and it's like they don't even because yeah. it's so much deeper it's so much deeper you know and it's interesting because um i don't know that many people who are as interested or so well um read and passionate about haiku um as you are and I love haiku, and I've used it as a tool to help, you know, children and um, people who don't find themselves as writers yeah, it's to like explore it's, writing yeah. in a way that, you know, it's a good gateway. Yeah. Um, and it's an easy form to learn, and so I see how it is beneficial um, as a tool to help people um, become writers and experience themselves and express the world around them and internally and externally, right? Yeah, I've, I've read some, some haiku, like legitimate haiku by kids that oh my like god a, it will like blow they, you away they're, there's so much in and like one of the one of the things about the haiku is like is that moment it's like yes. all of these things are these yes these tra- or these sharing of these these moments that are like uh, mm-hmm. that some something in you either big or small has is a is fundamentally and undoubtedly changed from that point on it's like there's this shift that occurs and i i feel like kids are like there's so, so much so good Yeah, they they live usually in the present. It's It's like there's not so much about. um, I feel like as people get older, there's much more of a tendency to live (laughs) either in the future or the past. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because those are where you either worrying about the future or there's regrets about the past. Yeah, or think about how the past, you know, impacts the future. Yeah, and it's you're caught up in that relationship. Everything, yeah, so much steals you away from being existing in the present. Whereas where I feel like when you're a kid, more often than not, it's like you're 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 in those moments. And it's in those moments are really the only way that you can connect with the things that that turn out to make like awesome haiku. It's true, and so um, I think that for me, that's where I entered into it and started to love it, and um, that haiku partnered with kind of my aesthetics with Clifton, who is an economic master of her in her own right. Yeah, um, it's kind of where I live in that, but I don't have the um, level of um, self-education when it comes to the tradition. Yeah. I'm getting into that now by way of like 
Richard Wright and Basho and being introduced to that on a more um, academic scale. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, I wish that you guys could see these shelves. He's legitimately got two shelves. And the thing... Well, the top ones is... um, And... It is uh, Korean and Chinese stuff. So all the stuff from the top shelf is is translations. Okay. It runs the gamut from... um, I have a Cohen book. I have a bunch of Beidou stuff. um, Japanese poets that are not haiku... Wait a minute, but do you see how you have to go through and tell us about what's on every shelf? That's the point. That's my point. So my point is you have, you know, you really have become a student of this. But I guess my question stems from, you know, where we are dealing with now as a human society, but especially here in the West and in America, how identity um there are politics associated with identity, right? Yeah. And then it is such a necessary thing, I think, for us as human beings to find, identify these spaces where something is either appreciation or appropriation and not yeah. necessarily to beat somebody over the head, but just so that we can all be aware and respectful of identity and how monumental this is to, you know, everyone's existence as individuals. Yeah, um, and I, I think that there's... As I actually, I just thought of this. There's a couple of things. I'll see if I think, see if I can make them quick. That, um, like I, I think that it's really telling that you can find, um, like an emotional connection or some sort of like deep connection mm-hmm. with a culture that is not your own. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there are times that it's, again, it's like it's it's difficult to 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 find that line between like if it's like the reason that your mm-hmm. appreciation or like how like the direction that that's mm-hmm. that that's coming from but um i think a lot of it really stems from um like zen or like buddhism kind of in general and zen is a really like if if mm-hmm. i would consider myself anything i would cons- like i'm very very close to considering myself a, a zen buddhist mm-hmm. um but that like that makes so much more sense to me of how like how i've i've grown just like in my own kind of development and isolation of um yeah it's like how i generally kind of see that things work out and like how the world is Mm -hmm. zen is very very close to that Mm -hmm. worldview yeah um and there's a lot of so like most of the time on the inside of me it's still and it's quiet and it's spacious and in zen Mm -hmm. it's like i i get like as a as a belief system that sense of like there's nothing on the inside but space mm. and quiet and stillness and you're Ooh. just there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think because of my association with Zen and like that, that like as a core belief system, it's like I'm very, very close to like that feels like it fits on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that explains, at least for me, a significant part of like my appreciation and my connection with wabi-sabi and haiku because both of them are very much drawn out from that tradition mm-hmm. um there are a bunch of other influences and other reasons why these things develop but it's like it's like these moments like being in that moment being in the present and like the mm-hmm. the, the sort of like ah moment mm-hmm. it's totally that's a like that's a buddhist thing yeah it's like that it's there and it's um so that's that's one thing, um, and I I think I don't know like just the fact that so much of haiku is like these these little these little moments and these little thoughts and this like the economy and like the the 
the sparseness and the like the economy of the language like that's how I think yeah um, and that's how I experience stuff so it was just um, like if haiku as a thing didn't exist I probably would have gotten close to inventing something like that because that's just you <laughs> know like if it wasn't out there in the world and I was writing poetry and that's I probably would have just started writing very very short nature-based poems that I like that I as a presence as the poet didn't exist in so much or at all mm-hmm. um, but it does exist and there's a entire fucking history like this massive tradition of it yeah. which is another thing and I, I will again try to make this quick because um, I could I could talk I'm actually going to try to do an, a there's a haiku poet coming in February that I'm gonna see if she's giving like a talk and I'm gonna see if I can cool. actually I'll see if you get information to that Please if there, do. see if there's still tickets um, um, but anyway, so I, um, I'm always like this weird sort of space of, there are a lot of musicians and a lot of bands that I love, mm-hmm. um, that I don't know like the history of the band or like the names of people in it it's just like I love the fucking music and mm-hmm. um, I actually like last night so one of my favorite bands is Asian Kung Fu Generation okay um, and last night was the first time I actually like Wikipedia the individual people in the band mm-hmm. um, just like read about you know like their lives or you know like actually learn the names of the bassist um, and the drummer and the other <laughs> guitarist um, and I feel like there are times kind of like I guess when you were talking before that having not had a, a history of being in English, that there's like yeah. an inauthenticity that you feel or like yeah. a... Imposter um, syndrome a little bit. Yeah. That I feel, I, I struggle against that a lot with some of like the, the um, like the poets that I love or the bands that I love or like, mm-hmm. you know, art forms or things that I love. That mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, I really dig the individual pieces, but I don't have so much of like the backstory to it. Yeah. And um, like I... I did a lot of the legwork. Um, I mean, a lot of it was it was done already. It's just I had to find like I did the legwork to find the books and the articles about like the history of haiku and you right. know, like um, very much benefiting from the excruciating research of other people. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like I I learned the history of haiku just mostly because a lot of it was like the introductions of anthologies that I read, and it's just like each each anthology that I read just gave me a little bit a clearer picture, picture of mm-hmm. you know like. Oh, this is how this developed, and then mm-hmm. you know, reading about Shiki is the the kind of the major force in the modern age that mm-hmm. like revitalized stuff, mm-hmm. um, and just like learning, you know, like reading a book on him and getting kind of his biography and being like, oh, this is the reason, yeah. and like filling in more of like the stuff, but um, like when you start dealing with the history and the tradition of it, you can start like parsing out into camps into like these people believe or that, like this movement or this um like this tradition of haiku believes this and this is what you it's you become more intimately knowledgeable of its evolution yes yes but i i think that there's a danger in becoming like elitist or becoming um authoritarian when it yeah, comes or to that like, knowledge yeah like, the, you are. like i went to um haiku north america which is a every it's a haiku conference every that happens mm-hmm. every two years mm-hmm. which i'll tell you about if yeah, you're interested i think the next one is actually. in Somewhere in New Mexico in 2017. Yeah, so, yeah or that's wild. Yeah. But, I, so, um, but, like, being there and hearing some of the people talk about, like, what their views of haiku are and, like, mm-hmm. hearing, not, like, major contention, but there's definitely, like, mm-hmm. different camps. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when when if if people just like read haiku and you know like didn't deal with the tradition of it which feels like it could it could be like a um like irresponsible way to deal with like you know especially if it's not part of your culture to, mm-hmm. you know it's like you need to be aware of yeah but like if you just dealt with the pieces themselves you may may or may not have camps mm-hmm. um because they're like i think that if you if you really got down into like the nitty-gritty and like read the original japanese and like studied the translations and like who translated them and that's all that's also another another A big whole issue thing. yeah um then you can see that there are probably you know like tendencies of like basho or busan or isa to like write particular ways or focus on particular things but um like you might not develop into these like camps of stuff and i feel like because i know so much more about the history and like the the development of it that when people say things about it or like present it in particular ways, it's like, I can't not say something, you know, it's like that, that part of me is like, you know, but it's like, that's not, but that's not actually it. Yeah. So I can see where there, that, where that balance, uh, has to exist for you of being a student of this and really having an appreciation for it, not just as an art form and as an artist that uses this form as a tool, but also as an individual who, sees um, a lot of the cultural ideas that surround this and that it fits in context with yeah. um, as a part of your own worldview and aesthetic, right? Right. And so, but also, you know, but then also saying that, you know, this evolved from, started, and exists in a culture that is not, you know, yeah. innately my own, or maybe not innately, but, you know, not originally my own, but I you know, it is a part of my identity, my yeah. now identity. So I see where that balance has to exist for you. And it's like, I, I don't want to like ever discourage anybody from like, like I, I yeah. hope that when it's, when it's like, well, that, that's not all it could be, or that's, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not really what it is. It's, it's an, it, it's an invitation to be like, it's so much deeper and it's so much yeah. more than this instead of just like smacking somebody down and being yeah. super dismissive no. like yeah yeah you don't know what you're talking about right yeah right. it's like so, and that's yeah. that's another balance it's like i don't mm-hmm. i don't want to come off as like this this uh, this authoritarian or this authority on this because i'm i'm not i've just i've just happened to have probably read more been a little bit more interested in this than the, the average person mm-hmm. um which does not make me an authority of any stretch of the imagination it's just yeah. like i have a little bit more knowledge than somebody else does and it's like i don't i don't want to wield this in a way that's um it's like dangerous or disruptive of somebody else or egotistical right yeah yeah because um it's like i didn't do any of the work no to discover this stuff yeah yeah um, yeah because yeah. you know it's like it's not actually my knowledge to be possessed it's just you know it's like i just i, I like i said I just anyone can read. have this right. knowledge yeah. yeah which is again it's like that's hopefully it would be like an ushering of like you know, Please this come this stuff's way. Out there. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> here is this road that I am on. Please, here is the path. Come join me. Yeah, and it's like, and also as we to, appreciate to, this. And this is something else that I've had to, to deal with is to know that like not everybody is excited or jazzed about haiku as I am. Like True. the fact that we spent most or of poetry the, at all. Right. Yeah, and the fact <laughs> that we spent most of the conversation today or a good chunk of it talking about haiku. It's like that was yeah. awesome. That was a tremendous and fantastic surprise for me i but, love haiku yeah i've like, pegged you as a haiku person and i can talk about this too um, who knows way more than i do yeah but i like in talking to other people about it i 
there are times of like in the history of what I can see like their their eyes starting to glaze, glaze over. <laughs> They don't care. And I'm like, I, yeah. I can appreciate the fact that you don't care, but yeah. it's like if we're gonna talk about this, we should talk about it in like a, in a like real the, way. The totality of mm-hmm. what it is, you know, instead what of what this exists as, instead of this McDonald's version that you know, yeah, you're satisfied with. Let's which, really have a conversation. Right. About yeah. Which I feel like is, like so much, so many other things, um, like stuff that's being that's in the news and stuff that's being talked about. Like the the. Um, refugee crisis the mm-hmm. whole like shit that's going down in oregon like there were that ridiculousness <sighs> yes um the world yeah that's like all the all these things that are like if we're going to talk about them and then like listening to npr um mm. has helped me realize this a great deal more that's like if we're if we're going to talk about stuff we should talk about them as like as completely and as wholly as we could possibly do it because there's yeah. so many people out there that spin like topics and spin events to support their like yeah you know and this is kind of going off but i agree with you and i think that it's part of this um ability we have now to kind of just not deal in context or in depth with a lot of things how we can become you know jack of all trades and masters of nuns or knowing a lot a, a little bit about a lot of things and not a lot about anything. Yeah. And so because, um, you know, iPhones and news feeds and Twitter or whatever else allow you to um, get bits and tids of what's happening as opposed to really digging into something. Yeah, but it's also, like, I can understand that sometimes it, like, the way that that bureaucracy or the way that, like, you know, corporations or government operates, it's like sometimes you really have to focus on one issue in order it's to get true. that, like... To get that first step, like this needs to be changed first, which is really fucking difficult. Like, and that I really, this is the first time I recognized that it was in the aftermath of the Baltimore uprising. Is that there's like so many parts com- to this? Yeah, it's like so many competing voices. Like they were saying, it's like this is the issue. No, this is the issue. No, this is mm-hmm. the issue. And it's like, well, no, actually, it's all of these things. We have to pan out and see that. Yeah, these it's like it's all connected. In the vacuum. But there's not like you can't allocate. You know, it's like it's the funds. You can't allocate money for this thing because you'd have to cut it from this thing but this is actually an important thing too that you have to deal with and it's like you gotta hit it's it'd be like um like you can't you can't go at it piece by piece it has to be it's like you gotta bum rush all this shit and change all of it at the same time in order for things to be actually like fixed yeah it's a it's a system um it's systemic and there context is so important yeah you know like seeing how something relates to another thing right um and how it impacts another thing and people and just it's complicated yeah it's levels of this shit man and so um i think that that's so important to realize whether you're talking about you know a form like haiku and you know its entire context or Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about you know the actions of a frustrated people in baltimore you know it's it, it, it all yeah. is important, and I think that context, um, it's its nothing to be played with. It's yeah. something that we need to pay attention to. So, so yeah. Yeah, so... And it's, yeah. like, all, like, the context, and getting back to the whole, like, the, the moment, it's, like, you got to be really mindful and aware in order to see how hey shit man. connects with, this, with other things. Hey, man, it's true, <laughs> it's true. And so that's tough. It's very tough, but it can be done, yeah. but, um... I'm thankful for this moment. Thank you. This yeah, was, thanks, this was this a lot of fun. 
yeah this was a lot of fun this was very yeah, thank you thank exciting. you for being willing kind of at the last minute like oh a week what? <laughs> totally excited thank you for being being a tolerant of my um time as a circle and not a line self yeah. so <laughs> i appreciate you in that um and i appreciate this opportunity i'm excited yeah this is cool i've been able I to will, really talk um this is a little bit of behind the scenes stuff i'll try to get this up tomorrow morning oh before my god I go to work because <gasps> um, so cool. i i don't edit these things at all <laughs> um, they just kind of roll through well here we are yeah um yeah so i'll do i think that i'll probably be able to get it uploaded tomorrow morning okay. um before i go to work and then i'll just i'll throw it out on facebook and like tumblr <gasps> but i'll like i'll share it on your your timeline so you can oh you can disseminate so it amongst cool. the people you know Oh man, that's gonna be cool and scary and exciting. Um, but I think that you know, it's in the same way my manuscript will be. So Ethan. this is this is a little. Oh yeah, so um, the manuscript that Sheree keeps alluding to is that oh, she yeah. she is graduating from the MFA the MFA program at UB in May. Yeah, University um, of Baltimore's wonderful MFA program. And she has she will have a book forthcoming. It's true. I'm excited about it. Um, do you have a title of it yet? Mm. You want to you want to give that give that away or you know what I think that it's in a it's in a place right now where it is it's evolving so much um, that it probably will not be the same. Okay. Uh, by the time we get so, there. Shreya has a yet um, nebulous and untitled <laughs> book coming. It will be coming out in May. Um, so if you there's usually a um, or there's always an MFA reading. Um, like the day or two before graduation. So if you're in Baltimore, um, come to the reading. Yeah, be on the lookout for that because they are awesome, fantastic time to to interact with awesome writers and get crazy great books that they all made and designed, and it's it's gonna be awesome. Well, yeah, okay. So that also, and then that my website will be where people who are not in Baltimore can um, get the book if they want. So that's um, yeah, I'll make sure to get your website. Up yes, on the, perfect. For like the con or the info. Perfect. On the, the track. Yeah, shariaharris.com. And so he'll have the spelling and everything there. Um, so yeah, I'll have them the books for sale there. And then I've got some performances and stuff coming up where maybe some parts of the manuscript may show up. Um, so just check check the website. Check my website. Check yes. out for me, <laughs> so I can see you and be a part of all the wonderful things yeah. that I've got going on. I guess. This is wild. Cool. It's happening. Yeah. Oof. Okay. Oops. Well, I think I think that's that's it. That'll cap out episode eight. Um, Woo. I will, if all things go well, we'll be talking to a friend of mine um, in Ohio for episode nine. Ooh. Um, I'm looking forward to that. If that works out, if not, I will get somebody else. Um, <laughs> there's there's no shortage of people to talk to. Although I really hope that I can talk with her. Um, so yeah, this is, I still have not figured out a good sign off yet. So, um, go read some haiku, go find a fucking haiku book and read, read some. <laughs> May the poem be with you. Ooh, I like that. Mm, kind of timely with uh, to, Star Wars. I might, I might just leave it up for my guests to come up with a sign off because that's <laughs> better than anything I could have come up with. So, all right guys, thank you for listening. Um, thank you. I will catch y'all next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>